The mules are in the corral. Welcome to Mule Talk, and I'm Cindy K. Roberts, your host. On this episode of Mule Talk, we have a mule guy that has packed mules in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. He's known around the town of Potomac, Montana as the Mule Man. His name is Ray Woodside. Ray, thanks for coming on to the show. Hi, thanks for calling and uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm sure it'll be a fun time. Um, I'm, I'm just dying to ask you, Potomac, Montana, uh, do you even get a whole week of summer up there? Yeah, we get a couple weeks of summer. It's not bad. <laughs> no, really, I love it here. I grew up on the coast in, in Washington, Western Washington, and it rained all the time. And over here, it doesn't rain much, and I love it. And so I really enjoy the four seasons. I mean, we have, the worst season is spring because when the snow melts, the ground is all muddy and the, the uh, frost is coming out of the ground. And then I ride, I have to ride on the roads and I drive on the roads. But You know, I think Montana would be a really cool place to keep your mules because the flies aren't as bad there. Am I right? Yeah, you're correct about that. They're, they're kind of bad at some times when it gets hot, but we don't get, you know, 80, 90 degrees the hottest we usually get here. Uh, we're up in the mountains at about 4,200-foot elevation. To, and, you know, Missoula is not too far away, but they, they get up to 110 at the highest temperature ever recorded in Missoula. But they're lower and in the valley where the wind doesn't blow so much. And, we're right on a river, so the, the wind blows up through here back and forth and cleans out the, the air. And at night, it always gets cool. So that's good. Wow. So, Ray, how long have you worked with mules? Oh, about 30-some years. I started very slow when I... I was a dairy farmer in my first life, and uh, and I was uh, 52 when I moved to Montana. But in Washington, I still had uh, three or four mules that I used for summer trips and mainly for hunting up in the Cascade Mountains because I lived right close to the Cascade Mountains. And then even I adventured over into Idaho, hunting in some of the mountains there and then the Bitterroot Mountains in uh, Idaho. So I've had them for that long, but I didn't really start until about 90. I was, uh, when I moved over here I, to Montana, I started packing for a uh, commercial outfit at Rich Ranch out of CD Lake, Montana. And I was their head packer there for eight years. So that's when I really got into meals. I got up to 10 or 12 meals at that time. Because yeah. I would buy the meals and he would lease them from me for the summer. And I was packing my own meals, which was good for me and good for him, too. So it worked really good. That is fascinating. So where did you go with with the mules when you packed in? We went mainly in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. It's uh, one of the bigger wildernesses in the country. I'm not sure, you know, how much square miles it is, but... It's uh, it's big, and uh, it takes you a few days to get across it, and it's uh, close. It's only, I, from my house, I'm 30 miles away from the trailhead, so uh, it works out really good for us, and I I worked for that outfitter, and I would just go to his place and be there and work at seven with most mules and load the packs and head up to the hills, and I'd go in the summertime 
I would go into the mountains every other Sunday in July and August. I'd go into the mountains with up to 15 people. So each one had a horse, and then uh, that's counting me and the crew. And then we had, you know, 12 mules or something that we packed every morning when we moved in the Bomb Marshall Wilderness. And that was a seven and 10 day trip usually. So it was quite expensive. And I, you know, the first year I was just a packer helper and then I learned the trails of what we had to do. And the next year I was the head packer for it. And the, the boss man, he would go in the office Sunday I did. So we had a trip going in every Sunday. Sometimes they overlapped and sometimes they didn't. Okay. So these people that you took into the wilderness, they, they paid you to take them in there for, like, camping? Right. Yeah, they, we had a lot of fishermen that went in, the fishermen. Uh, that's one of the, the best, the, the south fork of the Flathead River is what we usually camped on once we got in. That's the drains the whole Bob Marshall wilderness, basically. It, it doesn't get into the ski snow, but it's drains all that Bob Marshall Wilderness north, north Canada, till it gets up to Hungry Horse, and then it dumps into the regular Flathead River. But they would, they love fishing. That's some of the best cutthroat uh, trout fishing in the world, West Low cutthroat trout, and and they, uh, they just love it. And most of the people were so addicted to fishing, they didn't, you know, some people caught a few fish to eat, but not really very many. Um, they were just catch and release, and they just they just had a ball fishing. Fly fishermen really enjoyed that. And then we had some people that were horse riders, but not enough. I mean, I, I love when we had a good horse rider there because we had layover days. The people wanted to go fishing, and they would go fishing on their own. I'd put them on the river, and I would I'd last that seal until they come back into camp. But then I'd take some other people that they knew how to ride. We'd go or wanted to ride. They go up to the top of the mountains in there. And the, the mountain peaks are like 8,000 feet, and the passes are like 7,000 feet, and then the bottom is four to 5,000 feet of the valley. So we had a lot of elevation gain in there, and these are old, old mountains that pushed up, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, I guess. So pretty neat time. And people, some people want to go and just read a book. No, no sirens, no telephones, no nothing, you know. We have no cell service in there at all. Oh, of course, wow. when I was packing, there, there wasn't hardly any cell <laughs> service around anyway. So, oh. And there's no McDonald's. There's no McDonald's or, you know, <laughs> Wendy's around the corner to get your food. You had to take everything that we, yeah. you, you know, that we, uh, everything that we ate, we had to take. When we had the big trip, we had to have at least two meals, completely, sometimes two and a half meals just with food on them. Oh, my so, gosh. Who did the cooking? But, uh, yeah, we had uh, the Boston sister was one cook. She was the head cook. And then I had one wrangler. And so that was on the smaller trip. If we had 10 guests, we would get another couple in town or maybe some kids that knew a little bit about helping and doing things. And so they would go with us at, at no pay, but uh, they had to work for the food and they got the trip free. And they had to work for, uh, you know, help us saddle, help us wrangle. And then there's usually a, a girl that would help to cook for her, for her food because the uh, cook 
know, with 15 people to cook for us, quite a bunch of stuff to get on the fire and get it going all the time. We use some propane stoves and then some on the fire we cooked with. So, so did you use any freeze-dried food, those food, the food that comes in those packets? Did you have to eat those? Oh, no, no, we use, <laughs> they use uh, the food that they cook. Yeah. Usually the first time we got fried chicken because they could fry it outside and then just keep it cool and then heat it in a double pan boiler, I think what you call it, you know, steam heated, and it was just like fresh fried chicken. And then they would have pancakes and eggs for breakfast and sometimes bacon and pancakes. And we always had sandwiches and, you know, trail mix or whatever for lunch. But the dinners were pretty much full dinners. You know, we'd have salads and we'd have steaks. Uh, steaks usually the last night and different kind of meatloaf. And meatloaf was good to take because she could slice that up and and it warm it up on the steam double boiler, too. And now that worked out really good, too. And it just tastes just like it was right. Seeing all of those extra dinners we took, even the steaks and the meatloaf would be frozen solid when we left. And it would be in the bottom of the freezers, and it would be layered in there. So the, the first night we ate the chicken that was never frozen, but then after that we started going down through the coolers, and then pretty soon you'd get to the bottom, and in 10 days... Uh, it was still, it was good. And it gets hot in there some, but when it gets hot, we would put the coolers in the creek and throw a top, a mini tarp over the top of it and keep it wet down with cold water all day long. And then the nights cool off so good that we never had any trouble keeping food. We never took any ice. Uh, it was uh, a good time for the food. I mean, it worked really good. There was one time we had some rich folks there and they, they wanted to have an extra mule to take their beer in. And so they, they said, well, you, we supply the mule, but you supply the coolers and the beer. And so we're not responsible for your beer. They call it the beer mule. Oh, that's and funny. So they, they, put, uh, they put dry ice in the cooler and all the beer froze. And so the first night, it was pretty good. The beer right on top was pretty good. But the second night we got there, it was all frozen solid, and they were mad because they couldn't get their beer. So it was, they popped the top, and it was all fizzed out. It foamed out, and then all the ice was stay in the can, and they couldn't get it out. So I thought, well, I'll figure this out. So I went around back someplace behind the tree and took a can of beer, and we all had mugs to drink out of. Each person had to carry their own mug. So I had my mug in my saddlebag, and I took it, and I... I uh, popped the top of the beer can and let it all foam into the mug and it's like a big plastic insulated mug that's where we drank coffee or water or whatever out of. Anyway, so it foam into the mug and then I took my pocket knife and cut the top of the beer can off and uh, put uh, put the ice in the mug and stirred it up a little bit and got it broke up some and then I went around, I said, I walked in front of those guys, they never knew what I was doing. I said, boy, this is good. This, this slushy is really good. They said, what are you doing? I said, I'm drinking my slushy. And they said, what, what are you talking about? What's in that thing? I said, this is my beer slushy. And I said, it's really good. Well, how did you do that? You know, they were all freaking out. Boy, as soon as I told them, they were back there ripping those panniers open, <laughs> getting their beer out and making a beer slushy. So that's my story about the beer slushies. That really was good. 
So you were the bartender on that ride. Yeah, it was pretty funny. We had a laugh. I'm getting hungry by talking with you uh, and thirsty. But how do you keep the food safe from bears? At night, how did you keep it, keep the bears out of your food? Oh, yeah. We're, we're in grizzly bear country all the time. And so when you shoot them, if they come into your camp and, and you uh, get into your food. But I never had any trouble with bears at all. We're required by the Forest Service to have certified bear-proof containers for all of our food and garbage. Even uh, grain. You can't take grain in there without being uh, in a, you know, grain usually has molasses on it. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, the bears can smell that and they want to get through it. And so you have to have completely all of it. You know, anything that a bear would eat has to be in bear-proof containers. And you can't lose your camp unattended unless you have bear-proof containers. And so we always have bear-proof containers. I still have some. I have like three mule packs full that I can take and put, you know, like uh, big pellets. We call them packer pellets. I don't know if they have them around the country, but they sell a lot of packer pellets in this country because a lot of people pack them in. And we use those for treats for the animals, and you have to have them in bear-proof containers too. Because the bears will just eat them up. So, so that's how we did it. But we never had any problem with bears. I mean, it's usually, you know, a bear will pack a person or two, or even a grizzly bear. If you surprise them, you know, they might go after somebody. But, you know, if they see a string of mules coming or even a guy on a horse, they just turn tail and run. They just, you know, they're not real aggressive. I mean, they want to stay alive, too, and they don't want something bigger than they are to be you know, fighting with, so. Yeah. All the time I packed in there for 20 years, and I think I had my pistol out of my holster twice because we had a bear close, but I never needed to because they just ran away. What caliber pistol do you carry? 10 millimeter semi-auto with hollow point bullets in it uh, for the bears, uh, but I never shot one, so I don't know if it worked or not. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. I always had a bear. I had a pistol. I mean, I, everybody on the, that packed in there always carried a pistol. People, you know, that's before the bear spray really come out much, you know, but I've used some bear spray. I've practiced with bear spray and stuff and been around it, but I like lead spray better than bear spray. So <laughs> I definitely ever packed one. I always had one in camp. Just in case somebody was there and a bear came in and I wasn't there, they always had a bear spray they could get at in a hurry. But uh, we just never used it. So wow. So has has there ever been a mishap or something that went wrong on the trail? Yeah, I I helicoptered one guy out one time that had a, he fell in a river and slipped on a rock and pulled his. Muscle, he couldn't even ride a horse, and we were 30 miles in the wilderness. And the next day, we were supposed to go out. And so, you know, you got to make your make sure your schedule is right. Because if I give, don't get out of there, and there somebody's waiting for me at the trailhead with trailers, then then they're all freaking out, wondering what to do. So it happened one night. He was supposed to be in camp at six o'clock, and he didn't come. And then finally. I sent a, I think our, I think our, tra- our uh, my 
hacker helper went out to get them at six o'clock and they didn't get in until eight. I said, you guys get lost or what? Is oh, we got worse than that. We got an injury. So the guy, he couldn't hardly get on the horse. He's screaming when we took him off. And so they said, I was about 8.30 or something. And I said, man, we can't take you out here tomorrow. So I, uh, I knew where the ranger station was in there. And they had radio contact with the outside world. So I just had left my horse and ran three hours to the radio station. I got there about midnight. And uh, got the ranger out of bed, and he called a hospital helicopter and told them where we were. And he, uh, they, I said, it's not life-threatening or anything. We don't need to come in until the morning, but the guy can't walk, and he certainly can't ride. And so they landed there at 6 o'clock in the morning, loaded him up and took off, and we loaded everything else up. And he beat us back to the ranch, really, because he wasn't. He heard if he moved it, but uh, of course he took 25 minutes to get out of the wilderness, and we took, you know, 10 hours. So anyway, he got out fine. And then one other time, I had a horse roll into me when I was standing on the ground in camp, and I broke my leg in six places. Oh um, my! One leg. Yeah, he rolled up on me. We were about the same place, at 30 miles out into the wilderness, and so. My buddy, he went to the ranger station and ordered up a helicopter, and they flew me out that night. So, you know. so you got a helicopter ride? Yeah. <laughs> uh, How much did that so, cost? Oh, it was seventeen thousand dollars for the helicopter ride, but I had good insurance. So. Oh man! And that, and that was ten, twelve years ago. I don't know what it would cost today. Wow. Yeah. Well, Ray, we are getting short on time so can i have you come back on the show sure okay because sure, whatever works for you yeah I you let me know when you want to call and we'll see what we can do because i'd like to talk to you more about about your pack trips and all that and i do want to talk to you about you know your mules if someone wanted to get in touch with you you are on facebook yeah i'm, a, I'm on a public account on facebook and so it's just very good side you know it's a easy to find. There's a few Ray Woodsides on there, but I'm the best new man Ray Woodsides. So. There's only one Ray Woodside in my book, Ray. You're funny. Anyway, yeah, we didn't even get to talk about this show the mule and running extreme cowboy races with the mule for Craig Cameron and then what I could do in driving, you know. So Yeah, we need to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. We, we will talk about that. So listen, I will call you again. We'll talk next week. Okay. Well, have fun. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Thank you, Ray. We'll talk to you later. Uh-huh. The spirit of the Wild West lives on in my latest book, Desperados of the Wagons West Expedition. I rode with descendants of notorious outlaws, mule skinners, horse thieves, brothel workers, and Texas rangers that gathered at the Embar Ranch in Reserve, New Mexico. And so I documented their story. This is a modern day dime store novel published by Every Cowgirl's Dream. It's captivating and exciting to read. It's available at everycowgirlsdream.com, Amazon Books, and other participating outlets. Giddy up and get your copy today. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or a sponsor, send me an email, cindy, C-I-N-D-Y, at everycowgirlsdream.com. Gotta go. My mule is looking for me. 